So we've been studying the book of Revelation now for several months, and we finish up this morning looking uh, really at one idea contained in, in these verses uh, 16 to 21. We've kind of gone over these last couple chapters a few times looking at different distinct ideas, and this morning I want to deal with uh, one main aspect of this passage. But before I kind of get to that one main aspect, I want to, I want to briefly deal with another aspect of the passage, which is not going to be our main idea this morning, and then move on to the main emphasis of this morning's message. Here's the non-main idea that I will deal with briefly, since it is prominent in this text. This section contains a warning against tampering with God's word. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Those who say, thus saith the Lord, when God has not commanded them, as well as those who, like the serpent, said in the beginning, did God really say, when God has clearly said? This scripture is telling us that these people are not just mistaken, but actually accursed. There's a very serious warning here. That the plagues of Revelation will fall upon those who tamper with God's word. And that they will miss out on the tree of life. Now, in the context, this warning applies to the book of Revelation, obviously. But does the warning not imply that to do the same, for example, with Thessalonians, or Romans, or Deuteronomy, would be equally and likewise a curse? Since to, to do so would be a violation, really, of the same principle. The issue here is tampering with God's Word. To willfully tamper with God's Word, purporting to re relay his very words, when he has actually not said the very words that he ascribed to his mouth. Or, to negate what he, that he has actually said, what he has actually said, is something that God takes very seriously. Two things about this before we move on. First, the warning is against the willful tampering, as opposed to the mistaken interpretation of God's word. So we, we ought not to become neurotic and anxious about getting the interpretation of God's word wrong, getting our, our doctrine right or, or wrong, as if our salvation depended on it. But rather, we ought to tremble at the very thought of impiously and arrogantly putting words in God's mouth when he hasn't spoken. Or denying or taking words out of God's mouth, as it were, when he clearly has spoken. To sincerely figure out what God meant, to sincerely try to figure out what God meant, and to err in doing so, is not the same as to deny that God has said what he has said. To deny that the words that we're trying to interpret are in fact God's words. So, well, that's one thing that I want to draw your attention to in this respect. The second is this. 
This warning here is a reminder that we are not dealing with fiction, as I said to you last week. For to rewrite and to adapt fiction is no offense to God. If you, if you were to, for example, write a sequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, such that you have the Fellowship of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, and then the Two Towers by J.R.R. Tolkien, and the Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien, and then some other volume by John Ritterstark. <laughs> that's, no, that's no offense to God. It might be misguided, and it might not be up to the same quality standards as the first three volumes. But it would be no offense to God to add to that uh, body of work. The storyline of Scripture, mankind's fall into sin, and redemption through Christ, and heaven and hell and so forth, is not mythology or anything along those lines. God cares that we do not tamper with what He has said and what He has revealed for the very reason that it's not fiction. That this is life and death, that this is eternity, that this affects the way people live, the way people relate to Him, it affects eternal destinies, and so on and so forth. So the point here is we listen to God. And what God has said, we take it very seriously. We don't put words in His mouth that He hasn't spoken, and we don't take words out of His mouth that He has spoken. Now, that's the non-main idea that we're going to be dealing with this morning. Moving on from that naturally, though, and organically, to the main idea of our sermon today. As I said, this warning implies that Jesus is indeed coming back. Revelation tells us that Jesus is coming back, and this warning implies that this whole body of work is no fiction. God has really said that Jesus is coming back. To deny that, that God has said that Jesus is coming back is heresy. This is a touchstone of the true Christian faith. Jesus is coming back. And look at Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears. Now, all of a sudden today, that's you. Let the one who hears say, Come. And then Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These verses imply that Jesus is certainly coming back. Well, more than imply, they tell us explicitly that Jesus is certainly coming back. And they imply that we who are Christians, who are collectively called the Bride of Christ, ought to want Him to come back. Here's the main idea of this morning's message, and it's not complicated. We Christians should want Jesus to come back. Children, if your parents ask you at lunchtime, what was the sermon about? You can say to your parents, we learned that we should want Jesus to come back. That's what, that's what we're going to be dealing with today. However, though we should want Jesus to come back, sometimes Christians struggle with feeling like they don't want Jesus to come back just yet. And there are... A, Maybe a variety of reasons for this, ranging from the immature and the trivial to more understandable reasons, more 
relatable reasons. To try to address these heart dynamics of maybe why we feel like we're not, we don't really want Jesus to come back just yet, is the main emphasis of the sermon today. So let's consider what I think are the three main reasons why Christians sometimes don't want Jesus to come back just yet and have a hard time giving a hearty amen to the statement, come, Lord Jesus, as we read here at the end of Revelation. First, there is a group of reasons which I will lump all together. And these form a group of what we might call fear of missing out reasons. Or, right, FOMO, right? FOMO reasons. And these range from the childish to the more grown up. A little girl might say, well, my dance recital is next week and I don't want to miss it. Right? Or, again, children might say, well, it's December 10th. We're seeing the, the Christmas presents pile up under the tree. Maybe Jesus could wait at least till the 26th. <laughs> right? Or, moving along the spectrum, a young person might say, I haven't married yet, and I don't want to miss out on that experience. Someone might say, I want to do so much more traveling, and I don't want to miss out on that. Or there are some exciting career prospects in the short to medium term future, and I want to see what happens with those. Or I want to watch my grandchildren grow up, etc. All of these, you can, I think you can see the commonality. Whatever the specifics might be for any given person, from you know the four or five-year-old to the 84 or 85-year-old, you can, you can, I think, see the commonality of all of these fear of missing out reasons. There are certain things we want to experience before Jesus returns and life as we know it changes radically. Second, there is the possibility that it is simply not compelling for you to envision dwelling with God and seeing Him face to face. It's not necessarily that you don't want Jesus to come back. It's more so that you're kind of ambivalent or apathetic about when He does. You're enjoying your life. I mean, you know heaven's probably going to be alright, but you don't really feel any sort of longing. So, so someone says, oh, come Lord Jesus, and you say, yep, amen, come Lord Jesus. Right? Kind of ambivalent, kind of apathetic. You know objectively it would be good when Jesus comes back and that the world gets fixed as a result. But you have a hard time looking forward to and even longing to see God's face. It's the second reason. Fear of missing out, not really longing to see God's face. And thirdly, there is a more spiritually minded reason, which is concern for the souls of the lost, the unbelievers. You may be somebody who is concerned generally for the souls of unbelievers. 
that you have a very evangelistic heart, very compassionate heart, and your your heart hurts to think about Jesus coming back and the time being up for the millions and billions of lost souls who do not yet know Christ. Or even if you're not evangelistically burdened to that extent or, or in that way, if your loved ones are not yet believers, you may struggle to want Jesus to come back because you can't stand the thought of your spouse or your children or your grandchildren going to hell. And so you want Jesus to wait at least until your loved ones are saved before he returns. As I consider the question of why Christians don't always long for Jesus to return and why we sometimes struggle to say, come Lord Jesus, in a hearty way. And as I recall all the different conversations that I've been involved in or privy to over the years with respect to why Christians don't always have that longing, I think those aforementioned reasons are the main reasons why. If you have a clearly distinct fourth or fifth reason, in all seriousness, I, I would certainly be eager to hear that after the service. Let me know. But I think probably if you have a heart that's struggling to really want Jesus to come back, I think you could probably see in one of those three reasons, or perhaps two or three, or three or three, why you hesitate to want Jesus to come back. Let us respond then to each of the reasons why Christians sometimes don't long for Christ's return as we ought to. With respect to the fear of missing out, the FOMO reasons, I want to experience X or Y or Z before Jesus comes back. I think that this is misguided. I think that you are not thinking clearly enough about the new creation. I think that this is mainly, I'm going to say mainly a doctrinal error. That your, your doctrine of heaven is not good enough. I'm going to say mainly. Whatever your interpretation of Revelation, we've talked over the last several weeks and really the last several months about varied interpretations of Revelation. Particularly, whatever your interpretation of Revelation is in terms of symbolism versus literal correspondence, it is clear from, from all of Scripture, including Revelation, that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. As I was pressing the point a couple of weeks ago, we are not going to be disembodied spirits for all of eternity, but rather our bodies will be raised and even the creation itself will be made gloriously new. This new creation will not be inferior in any way to the present creation. The trajectory of human experience throughout Scripture, going for the believer, going from this world to the next, 
is always improvement. It's always portrayed to us as getting better as we go from this world to the next. I personally think, and here I'm not telling you this is what, for sure, 100%, what the Bible says. You have to agree with me. I'm not saying that. Alright? I'm telling you what I think. I personally think there will be actually more or less one-to-one -one correspondence between places and geography in this world and in the next. Because Romans 8, verse 21 tells us that creation itself, implying this creation itself, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Which I think implies very strongly and perhaps, perhaps unavoidably, so I'm, I'm happy to bear a disagreement on this point, that that means that even this island itself will be free from its bondage to corruption. Likewise, other continents, and so on and so forth. It's not something else other than this creation which longs to be free from its bondage to corruption. But it's this creation itself. Which leads me to think that if we were to put, say, a map of the new heavens and the new earth, I think it would be very similar to the present map. That's what I think. Alright? Yet, I can see that it will be of an incomparably higher order. I don't know exactly how to explain that or describe that, but as I was pointing out to you, in Revelation 21, 21, we're told that even the streets of the new Jerusalem are gold. And as I made the point to you, I take that, I take that as symbolism. Perhaps you take that literally. But even if I take it as symbolism, what it's symbolizing is that that's going to be way better than this. Right? As I said, there's not going to be potholes in heaven. We're not going to be looking to the, the Ministry of Transportation and Works to be filling in the potholes of the streets of New Jerusalem. In fact, not only are they going to be paved nicely with asphalt, but they're going to be paved with gold. This is the way the scripture puts it to us, which tells me my experience, even if it's pretty one-to-one, -one, my experience of the renewed, glorified Barbados would be incomparably better than my experience of the present Barbados, even if there is one more or less one-to-one -one correspondence in terms of physicality and geography. Somehow, it's not going to be just like Jesus comes back and then here we are driving the same roads in the same present condition that they're in. And if, even if it's symbolism, the symbolism is so grand that you have to envi envision a radical transformation of the present order of things. And so I'm not suggesting that life goes on nearly the same way that it does now and that Jesus coming back basically won't make any difference. I agree it will be radically new and radically better. But I think as, as it is the case that we ourselves will be radically new and radically better, but will still be us. So it is even with the creation itself in some inexplicable way. 
So anything not sinful that I don't get around to doing now, I think I could do later. You see? Human society continues to exist in the new creation. We, we read about the... In the language of, of Revelation, we read about the kings of the earth bringing their glory into it, which harkens back to the Old Testament prophecies of tribute and so on and so forth, which then also implies industry and economy. But there's some level of organization, productivity. Is work a product of the fall? No. Thorns and thistles are a product of the fall. So, in terms of continuing to be productive, continuing to live, continuing to work, continuing to labor, continuing to partake in human society, even art, think about the fact that we're presented with music in the way Revelation portrays heaven at present, as well as the new creation. I, I think that whatever we don't get to now, presuming it's not sinful, we can get to. And it's going to be, in fact, better then than it is now. Whether or not you agree with me on that level of specificity or not, okay? That's not a point of orthodoxy. But you should agree with me based on scripture that our experience of the new creation will be better than our experience here and now. Even if it's not the same level of one-to-one -one correspondence that I just described, all right? Even if we conceive, conceive that it's different than John thinks, that it's not quite so specific. It's not quite so much of a direct correlation. You have to recognize, the scripture says our bodies will be raised, that there will be a physical world for us to live in, and that it's going to be better than the world now. Right? So even if the math is very different, and you know, no, one's, no one's playing guitars in heaven, but it's, it's a whole different order of instruments, and the kinds of work we do now are radically transformed, so we're not doing the kinds of work that we're doing now. It's very different than, than I'm envisioning. Nevertheless, you still have to say that it's going to be better than what we have going on now. And so we don't have to fear missing out on good experiences by Jesus coming back. The one experience that it does seem will be radically different is marriage. Since Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, In the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I will admit I don't know exactly what that means. And what is our relationship going to be in heaven with our former spouse? Or like the question the Sadducees asked, people who were married multiple times, in what relationship do they stand to their former spouses? I don't know. I don't know the answer to all these questions. 
However, Jesus responds to that and he says, he says two things. One is you don't even know the scriptures, right? To the, the Sadducees, because they were trying to disprove the resurrection altogether. And he says, even the passage of the bush shows that there is a resurrection, because God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And since he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, you should have inferred, which by the way endorses the interpretive practice of making inferences. You should have inferred that there is a resurrection. So he says to the Sadducees, you obviously haven't studied the scriptures very well if you think there's no resurrection. But secondly, he says to them, you don't know the power of God. And I think the thrust of that is, you don't know exactly in what manner, and you don't have to know exactly in what manner God brings about the things that he plans to do. Right? Asking practical nuts and bolts questions about what relationship do we stand towards our former spouses in heaven is sort of a nuts and bolts question. It's like, well, when you said, let there be light, by what mechanism was there light produced? It's sort of like, well, we can leave some things to the power of God and just say, we don't understand everything God does, how he brings it about. But when he says, this is the way it's going to be, we can just acknowledge, okay, well, God can do something that I can't conceive of. And that's, I think, the thrust of what Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 22. There is, as he says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. We can't conceive that, but we can say, well, we do know the power of God. So however he brings that up, so be it. So we can leave it with the power of God, but we can also look at the trajectory that things always get better into the new creation. And so even if somebody is a young, unmarried person and is feeling like, I don't want Jesus to come back because I haven't got married yet and I want to have that experience, you can acknowledge that the trajectory of Scripture is always that the next world for the believer is better than this world. And you can leave it with the power of God in terms of how exactly that applies with respect to romance and marriage and intimacy and so on and so forth and all of the things that you tend to feel like now are going to get worse and and less desirable when Jesus comes back. So in thinking about these things, the trajectory, the renewal, the correspondence, if you feel like the new creation and your experience of it is going to be worse than this world and your experience of it, you have a bad doctrine of heaven. You have a bad doctrine of the new creation. And again, I admit there's, there's some room for disagreement among brothers in terms of exactly how much correspondence there is, exactly how much discontinuity there is. But we should all agree, if we have a biblically sound doctrine of heaven, we should all agree that we are raised, we live in a physical place, that there is some continuity, and that it's better than this present world is. And that should help us resolve that, that whole category of fear of missing out, reasons why we might not want Jesus to come back. Now, secondly, with respect to not finding it compelling to see God's face and to dwell with it. If the first mistake, the fear of missing out, was innocent and could arise simply from naivety and mistaken doctrine, this next mistake of not finding it compelling to see God's face and to dwell with it 
This mistake is more spiritually sick. This mistake is more spiritually ill. There is disease in your soul if you don't find it compelling to see God's face and to dwell with Him. For anyone who is a Christian ought to long for the sort of intimacy with God which is to be our lot in the new world. What is the greatest reality presented to us in Revelation 21 to 22? Is it the streets? Is it the pearls? The amethysts? The diamonds? The jacinth? Is it the tree of life? As you look at the different things presented to us, what is it? Is it that there will be no more tears? No more mourning? No more death? Here's the most beautiful and glorious thing presented to us in Revelation 21, 22. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 22 and verse 4. They will see his face. We can, we can get to that conclusion by virtue of what the rest of the Bible teaches us. By virtue of thinking even about what, the very nature of idolatry. If you, if you would rather have pearls than God, then pearls are your God. If you'd rather have streets of gold than God, then streets of gold is your God. If you'd rather have no tears than God, then comfort is your God. That's, the, that's literally what idolatry is. So we can, we can work it out that way. We can also work it out by, by saying, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment is love God with everything you have. Right? So when we, when we come to Revelation 21 and 22, if we have internalized, imbibed, appropriated, applied everything that comes before in the previous 65 books and in the first 20 chapters of Revelation, and we read the description of the new world in Revelation 21 and 22, the thing we should be most excited about if we are healthy is behold the dwelling place of God is with men. They will see his face. If not, there's something wrong. And listen, let me let me be clear about this. There's something wrong with me. Because as I read through, I don't always feel like that. So I'm not trying to be all high and mighty with you. But I, I am trying to say, sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't, we ought not to justify the way we are. Sometimes the scripture does vindicate us. For example, the world hates you and the world criticizes you and you start thinking, is there something wrong with me? And then you go to the Bible and the Bible's like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. They just hate you because they hated Jesus before you. So stay on your present course, keep doing what you're doing, you're on track, everything's good. Sometimes the scripture vindicates us pats us on the back, tells us we're right, keep going. 
But sometimes when we come to the scripture, the scripture actually points out where we're wrong. And we need to have a category for that as well. And so as we think about heaven, and as we think about this description in Revelation 21 and 22, we ought to, doctrinally, we ought to say, all right, well, objectively speaking, the most important thing in Revelation 21 and 22 is, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and they will see his face. And then we need to look in the mirror and say, do I feel like that is the most important thing or not? And if I don't, there's something wrong with me. Sometimes our affections for our spouses, for those of, of us who are married, are not what they should be. Am I right? Sometimes our affections for our children are not what they should be. We can recognize, even in human relationships, that sometimes we don't feel the way that we ought to feel. That sometimes our affections are wrong. We don't love as we ought to love. It ought to stand to reason that sometimes our affections for God are not what they ought to be. And if, if we think we have a hard time saying, Come Lord Jesus, because we're just not excited to see Jesus. Then that's a case in point. Of something being wrong with our hearts. Listen to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the beloved. Do not long to see your Father? Do not long to see your Heavenly Father, who has loved you with an everlasting love, with a better love, a truer love, a deeper love, a love of a different kind and a different order, than any other love that you have ever experienced. For it was, it was, in spite of your finiteness and your, your brokenness and your sin and your rebellion, He looked upon you, not with mixed feelings, do you understand that? But with a love of intent and purpose to take you and make you His own. To wash you and make you holy and blameless. Persevere with you through all your stubbornness, all your weakness, all your sin. To be a good father to you. Not just most of the time, but every second of your life, God the Father loves you, Christian. In a way that nobody else does or can love you. Remember, if your affections, if your affections for others are sometimes wrong, doesn't it stand to reason that the affections of others for you are sometimes wrong? Even the people that love you most deeply don't love you like your Heavenly Father. 
And that's why I say this is of a different kind and a different order. It's a love unlike any love that we have known. In the midst of whatever we're going through, however low, still underneath are the everlasting arms. Where does the cross come from? We talk about Jesus in a moment here. But who sent Jesus into the world? The Father. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's God the Father from whom God the Son is sent into this world. I paraphrased John Owen for you before, but it's so important to get this right. Some people think that there's no sweetness in the Father, no, no, no disposition of goodness toward you, but that basically which the Son twisted His arm, so to speak, forced Him to give you by what Jesus did on the cross. That the Father is angry, that the Father is wants to punish you, that the Father has no good disposition for you, but Jesus did something to make Him love you the way some people think about it. But John Owen says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You got it all backwards. It's from the Father's heart that Jesus comes into the world to save us. Don't you long to see your Father? Don't you long to be with Him? It's a verse in Zephaniah that says He will quiet you with His love. Sing over you. Thing that this is intended to connote to us the imagery of babies crying. You pick them up, and what do you do? You quiet them with your love. You sing over them. And every tear is wiped away from their eyes, as it were, and they're quieted by your love. You sing over them. I think that that's at least part of what the imagery in Zephaniah chapter 3 is intended to convey. We're crying here and now. But he's going to take us up. Quiet us by his love. Single. Don't you long for that? Don't you want that? And we go on in Ephesians 1. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. We're well familiar with what Jesus has done for us, that we are sinners who deserve to be punished for our sin, and Jesus went to the cross and took the punishment that we deserve, that we should have lived right, but we didn't. So Jesus came and lived right in our place, so that we would be counted righteous, that our sin would be counted as atoned for, punished, through Christ Jesus. This is the redemption through His blood. And as we talked about 
last week. It's Jesus that brings everything to its appropriate denouement ending. It's Jesus who unties all the knots and everything gets fixed and all things are united in him in the end, things in heaven and things on earth. As I've said to you before, Jesus is like the neck of an hourglass, that narrow neck between the top and the bottom through which everything that God intends to give to us passes. Through Jesus that we have all the blessings of the covenant. It says in the, the scripture, I can't remember which apostle it was that wrote, but it says, though we do not yet see him, we love him. Is that not true? Do you not love Jesus? Though you do not yet see him? And one day won't it be great to see Jesus? goes on. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. O blessed Spirit, who has opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. Number 2 Corinthians 4. If there are if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. God of this world has blinded their eyes to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of His glory in the face of Christ. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of His glory. It's the Spirit who opened your eyes. It's the Spirit who gave you the new birth. It's the Spirit who resides in you. The Spirit who sheds God's love abroad in your heart. It's the Spirit who illuminates your understanding to the things of Scripture. It's the Spirit who empowers you as you live your daily life for Christ. Do you not love the Holy Spirit? Isn't He, isn't he so wonderful? Isn't it a great gift that Jesus has not left us as orphans, but as He said, has sent His Spirit to us? That other comforter. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit shall dwell with us. We will be His people. And he will be our God. If you struggle to say, come Lord Jesus, because you're just not that excited about seeing God, something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with me when I feel like that. Let us look at the scriptures and meditate on the scriptures until we find that love for God stoked up again, stirred up again, fanned into flame the affection for God that ought to be there. But considering Him, in his glory, the glory of his person, the glory of his work, until you feel that, like, yes, come Lord Jesus. I want to see his face. Well, the third reason, with respect to concern for the lost, some people hesitate to say, come Lord Jesus, because they know what it means for those who are not yet in Christ. There is still time, as it says in Psalm 32, let us call on him while he may be found. There's appointed unto man 
wants to die, and after that, the judgment. There is today, as Hebrews 4 says, today is the day of salvation. But there is a time coming where time's up. The hourglass runs out. Clock strikes 12. Some people are concerned for the lost in such a way that it makes them hesitate for Jesus to come back. Look, I admit, this is a very understandable one. Very understandable one. Your spouse is not a believer. Your kids are not believers. Your grandkids are not believers. It's very understandable. I think for that reason, it's one of the hardest ones to deal with in terms of why we ought to long for Jesus to come back in spite of this. I think we can see that self-centeredness is wrong. That if, if we're all about ourselves and our experience and we, we want to tell God what He should and shouldn't do, because of how it will affect us, I think we can understand that, that that's wrong. But, if I can put it this way, lost soul-centeredness seems more legit. That we would say, well, Lord, this is not a selfish concern. This is for my kids. This is for my spouse. It's for the nations. It's for all the people who haven't heard don't come back yet because they need to be saved. Okay? Pretty understandable. Does it feel does it feel selfish? Does it feel wrong? But it feels right. And I think there is something right about it. Because even God Himself says in Ezekiel 33, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I've dealt with that at greater length at different times, so I won't belabor the point here. But there is a sense in which God Certainly, though he has, though he is going to punish people in hell, God is not happy about people going to hell. We can put it that way. God is not gleeful about it. There's a very real sense in which God is concerned for the lost. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die, O tribes, to the end of the earth? Why will you die, sons and daughters of Christians at CRBC? Why will you die, grandkids? I think something, there is something right about that. And yet God has decided at some point, it's fixed the time for Jesus to come back. And at that time, those who have not yet believed will be punished for their unbelief. I think what it comes down to is God's prerogative here. Who's, whose business is it to set that time? It's God's business. That's God's sovereignty to settle. And if God does that at a time when we don't prefer, is God wrong then? Because He has done it at a time that we thought He shouldn't have done it? I think if we think it all the way down to the bottom, we have to realize that that's the time that God has fixed for Jesus to return. It's God's prerogative to do so. And if it doesn't please us, frankly, to God.
Right? We have to we have to justify God in terms of what God does, what God decides. His ways are not our ways. And God is not let me put it this way, like though 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 God cares for us, we are not at the center of God's world. God is at the center of God's world. Because God is at the center of all things. We don't live in a John-centered world, nor do we live in a John's kids-centered world. Right? Or John's unsaved friends-centered world. And so on and so forth. We live in a God-centered world. Likewise, you can insert your own name and realize, at the end of the day, God has the prerogative to do what He plans to do when He plans to do it. And it's not always what we would prefer or when we would prefer, and so on and so forth. But here's where the, the Christian religion calls for ultimacy in a way that really confronts our nature. Remember Jesus said, if anyone loves his father or mother, or brother or sister, could I expand it? Say kids, grandkids, more than me? He's not worthy of it. See, the Christian religion confronts us very starkly with the requirement that we, we justify God. We side with God. We trust in God. We believe in God. We love God. Above all else. Above all else. And what that means is that when we think about our relationship, say even to our spouses, or our relationship even to our kids, or our relationship even to our grandkids, we need to say yes, we genuinely and sincerely love you. Love them. But if I had to choose to be on your side or God's side, I would be on God's side. You realize that? That's just how ultimate God requires our allegiance and our affections and so on and so forth. This ought to affect then the, the center of our lives as we live. Right? We ought, we ought to live God-centered lives rather than kid-centered lives or spouse-centered lives or whatever else. And as we love the people around us, we should be testifying to God as the center. As we speak to our kids, we should be warning them of the fact that Jesus is going to come back. Or they're going to die before Jesus comes back. And everyone has to stand before God on their own two feet and give an account for themselves. And we ought to earnestly warn our unbelieving kids and grandkids and spouses, friends, co-workers, family members, neighbors, that there is a time when the offer is no longer standing. When today gives way to too late. When it's not today is the day of salvation. It's too late for salvation. We need to press that upon them. And you want to be you want to be discreet 
tactful in how you how you say it because you don't want to bring it across harsh or unloving. But I think it's right for even our kids to understand that we love God more than anything else than anyone else, and that our our ultimate hope is as we talked about to be in that new creation to dwell with God. And as the old hymn says, though none go with me, still I will follow. And our kids should have an understanding. And our unbelieving spouses should have an understanding. Even if you don't go with me, still I will follow. Remember how heartbreaking it was in Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read it, or read any adaptation, or seen any movie adaptation of it. Remember how hard it was for Christian? To leave the city of destruction? Why? Because his family didn't go with him. His wife and his kids thought he had lost his mind. And so Christian had to leave the city of destruction and go on his pilgrimage by himself. He had to settle, though none go with me. Still I will follow. And it's right for the unbelievers in our lives, whatever they're standing to us, spouses, kids, grandkids, whatever, it's right for them to understand. Even if you don't go with me, still I will follow. I want you to go with me. I hope you go with me. I pray for you to go with me. My heart breaks that you're not going with me. But even if you don't go with me, still I will follow. And so I think with respect to this third thing, both concern for the lost, causing us to hesitate, about Jesus coming back. I think we really need to recognize when God says time is right and it's time to separate the sheep from the goats. It's time to bring everything to a day new long ending for those who have trusted in me. It's time to untie and unravel and untangle all the knots to wipe away all the tears of my people. It's time to make all things new. I think we need to say not only can we not oppose God on the grounds of what that will do for, for us and our own experience, self-centeredness, but I think it's right for us to realize we can't oppose God on the basis of what that will do to the lost, as if we live in a lost centered world. But to say when God says the time is right, the time is right. Who knows better than God when the time is right? Let us justify God. Let God be true, though every man alive, as it says in Romans. Christian, do you long for Christ's return? I don't expect that this sermon has fixed all your problems in that area, but perhaps it has been helpful in diagnosing why you struggle, if you do, and you can give some further thought and further attention to that. Meditate on the vision of the new world Scripture gives us, and on God Himself, and on the centrality of God's sovereign plans and purposes until your heart says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And unbeliever, recognize as I've been talking about, incidentally, probably putting two and two together, listen, today is the day of salvation, as it says in Hebrews. It says in Psalm 32, the psalmist says, let us call on him while he may be found. Listen, today he may be found. All you little children, 
Listen here. Trust in Jesus right now. You will be saved. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Today is the day of salvation. Unbelievers sitting here, hear this. You're the sons, you're the daughters, you're the spouses, the nephews, you're the uncles, you're the grandparents, you're the grandkids of someone who loves you and is praying for you and wants you to be there with them. Here, come to the Lord Jesus. Look at what he says here. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Revelation 22, verse 17. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You want to be in that new world. You want to dwell with God. You want to be there with the believing family members and friends. Come. You're thirsty. Come. You desire this water of life. Come. Today is the day of salvation. Call on Him where we may be found. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Get ready for that day. Let all of us who are in Christ say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.